I want you to imagine for a second that you just got home from your day job, showing well-fed tourists from off-planet around the local winery. It's interesting work, all right, but it doesn't pay as much as you like, and these days you're spending about 45 minutes every day going through security checkpoints. You go home, you turn on some loud music, you bolt your door, and you walk downstairs into your basement. Behind the shelving unit of spare droid parts and data slates, you take out your hidden transceiver and tune it to the secret rebel channel your contact at work told you about. Just as you think you've gotten to the right channel, you hear the unmistakable sound of your planet's emergency broadcast system go off. You rush outside to see what looks like a round orb the size of a moon in the sky. Although, in closer inspection, it's too small to be a moon. About two minutes later, you and your entire planet are vaporized for being rebel sympathizers. You just got Alderand. Welcome to the Grim Dark Battle Station. You're listening to Grim Dark Battle Station, the show that takes a real-world look at fictional conflicts and has been indicted for heresy three times. The topic of this week's episode is, of course, the granddaddy of them all, the intergalactic conflict that occurred a long time ago in a galaxy controlled by an evil mouse, Disney's The Star Wars. These days, the franchise is all-encompassing from books to movies to live-action and animated series. There's a wealth of official and unofficial data that can be mined to take a deeper dive into galactic history and critically assess the strategies and behaviours of the main players. If you're new to the whole Star Wars setting, then this is a really odd podcast for you to choose to listen to, but you're welcome anyway. The topic of today's episode takes place in a backdrop that spans approximately 25 years of galactic history, from the start of the Clone Wars to the Battle of Endor, or Episode 2 to Episode 6 in movie terms. Sparknotes for the galaxy in question, it's about the size of the Milky Way galaxy that we live in. It contains billions of stars and trillions of human-tier lifeforms, including innumerable alien races. Some sort of higher power exists in the form of the Force. It's omnipresent and morally agnostic, a unifying energy present in all beings. The entire plot of the franchise really is about people that worship and harness the light or good side of the Force against the people that harness the dark or bad side of the Force. The dark side users in the movies, the Sith, put in place a plan to seize galactic power from the current political administration, the Galactic Republic. They succeed and proclaim a galactic empire, which is basically just space fascism, and the Death Star is their large military pet project that straddles this time period and is sort of in research and development R&D phase up until the empire is, is fully established, so really it's, it's the first big symbol of the new order. So what is the Death Star? Well, the DS-01 Death Star Orbital Battle Station was a colossal mobile space station the size of a small moon. It was effectively a weapon of mass destruction wrapped in a 1 million personnel military base that could float through space. It had the same surface area as Denmark and quite a few layers underneath it. In terms of its military power, it contained the following. A sector-sized army, 100 operational TIE fighter wings, two legions of stormtroopers, four or more smaller spaceships called strike cruisers, support craft, 5,000 point defense turbo lasers, 5,000 anti-ship 
heavy turbo lasers, 2500 laser cannons, 2500 ion cannons, which are non-lethal, 750 tractor beams, 3 years of consumables, and a giant freaking laser that blows up planets. So let's unpack this a bit. A sector-sized army is, according to the source data, 600,000 troops. On top of this, there is likely to be things such as transport, tanks, artillery, light air support, etc. This is a sizable amount of soldiers, but it only represents a tiny percentage of the Imperial Army. If we assume that the average army size per sector is the same as the size in the Death Star, then we can say that the Imperial Army had somewhere between 500 to 600 million troops. Small, poor, or sparsely populated planets could be captured with this force, but it's nowhere near big enough to successfully evade an average Star Wars planet. 100 operational TIE fighter wings is an interesting one though. A TIE wing is a grouping of 72 spaceships, be they space superiority, interceptors, or bombers. And they're designed similarly enough to our current jet planes to fulfill similar strategic purposes. You've got your mix of fighters, bombers, and interceptors. And this mix changes depending on the mission. In functional terms, these wings are likely to be used to fight and cripple smaller ships that might have their own fighters, fight other fighters. And when we say small ships, we mean spaceships that are big enough to require attention, but not big enough to endanger the Death Star or any large Imperial capital ships like a, like a, the well-known Star Destroyer. Death Star had 100 operational wings, meaning 7,200 operational fighters, with a multitude of that in repair, rotated out or undergoing training or professional development at any one time. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that a couple of these wings could take out your average capital ship. Two legions of stormtroopers is about 16,000 shock troops, and if we put aside how awful they were in the movies, we can assume that their job in fleet engagements would have been boarding and seizing valuable ships, and in planetary assaults they would carry out decapitation strikes against key infrastructure. The strike cruisers are a bit of an iffy one. The Death Star likely had a few, some sources said four, some sources say more. These are probably good enough one-on-one -on -one to take on anything a non-core world could field. And in Star Wars, the core worlds are the most economically developed worlds closest to the galactic center. In Earth terms, I suppose they would be the quote-unquote West or the industrialized world. It's difficult to come up with something relevant for these to fight, but if you think about the Corellian Corvette, Princess Leia's ship in Episode 4, a strike cruiser could likely take on maybe half a dozen of these and come out on top. We actually don't get solid representations of the smaller ships that the Imperial Navy has in the movies, but again, four strike cruisers is in that big enough to cause trouble and likely to be decisive category. The 15,000 laser cannons are very relevant, but would likely only be defensive in nature. Technically in space, a laser beam would continue forever until it hit a target, but for sci-fi and rule of cool purposes, these cannons basically ensure that medium-sized starships get pulped if they come anywhere near the Death Star. They're probably also useful for space debris. And they're there, they serve a purpose, but it's unlikely that reality will ever happen. No one is going to throw a fleet with 250 decent-sized ships at the Death Star. In fact, in the uh, Episode 4 novelization, the Rebels initially send, a, I think it's 500 X-Wings at the Death Star, and they, they all get completely destroyed. Not a good idea. Three years of consumables, though? Military advantage for the Death Star. 
that's a tremendous amount of time to be able to survive without being restocked. In fact, the Death Star could probably outlast any threat it needed to, just sitting behind its bank of lasers, wings of starfighters, and mountains upon mountains of space MREs. So far, the Death Star is a meaty beast. It, it has the capacity to carry out practically every military role, well, most of them, to a level the average planet cannot match. It's a complete victory solution that is mobile. And that would be scary enough if it weren't for the fact that it also has the power to blow up entire planets. The super laser of the battle station was designed as a weapon of mass destruction and symbol of the power of the new empire. In fact, the Death Star is a super laser with a space station built around it rather than the other way around. It uses highly focused energy that is practically unstoppable. It's effectively the same energy that powers a Jedi's lightsabers. Theoretically, it would be possible to construct some form of shield, but I doubt any planet would have the resources or speed to do so. And now the, the, the first Death Star needed 24 hours to recharge, but I mean, it's, it's probably quite difficult to miss a planet. And the Death Star could also defend itself for several months non-stop. If it goes off, you're dead. So then, what's a Death Star? It's an aircraft carrier, military base, transport the size of Denmark with planet-killing nukes. So what was the strategic concept behind the Death Star? The, the general strategy of the Imperial Navy is a sort of hybrid model. This is especially pronounced when we consider the Imperial Navy is both similar to our air forces, uh, our marines and our general navies. And there's different aspects around fleets and bases, etc. that would be cool to look at in other episodes, and we will. But for our purposes here, we're interested in the doctrine that best represents why the Death Star came about. This doctrine was known as the Tarkin Doctrine. And it's named after Grand Moff Tarkin, who functionally was the head of the military junta underneath the Emperor. It's a broad concept in the sources. There's administrative aspects to it, anti-corruption aspects, uh, geographic aspects. It divides the galaxy into regions. It creates a, a hardcore military state. But the core doctrinal aspect is the use of the threat of force rather than the actual use of force to maintain order. At its most reductive, it's a copy and paste of the thinking behind the atomic bombings of Japan. It means outrageously overreacting in plain view of everybody, so they all come to the conclusion that you are absolutely nuts and you're willing to do anything to attain your goal. It's not a new idea, the, the Mongols use it to great effect. Don't resist, we'll leave you relatively unscathed. Resist, we'll pour molten metal down your throat, or reroute an entire river to eradicate the village in which you were born. In reality, though, important planets were not likely to get Alderaand. Although the galaxy is colossal, it's not like you can wipe out 1% of galactic GDP permanently and expect that economies and institutions would just absorb such a shock. The Death Star is, I guess, both unusable and usable. Tarkin's thinking, which is pretty sound, is that if you blow up a few planets, no resistance at the planetary level can continue. In addition, the burden of hunting rebels will now be shared by terrified planetary governments. You will save a lot of money because these systems will not want to give you any excuse. They will become repressive by default, even if you're not actively making them be so. 
The Empire can then methodically remove dissent and entrench authoritarian institutions across the one million worlds under their control. Another thing that Death Star touches on is an aspect of sea power called the fleet in being. This is a concept where the mere existence of a fleet of ships has an effect on enemy behavior. You, you basically don't have to do anything yourself to drain the enemy or scare them into making mistakes. Think of it as if you have a big enough ship or enough ships in your fleet to completely isolate your enemy's territory if you get out into open water. Your enemy will have to constantly divert resources to ensure it can keep your fleet in port. Now how the Death Star achieves this is, is slightly different. If you wanted to go toe-to-toe with the Empire, you would need a Death Star killing fleet or weapon constantly ready before you could ever fight their other forces. That would be impossible to manufacture in general, but also with the Empire knowing and knocking on your door within about 15 minutes with their giant super laser. Your entire strategic planning would be centered on negating the effects of the Death Star before you engage in any other hostile acts towards the Empire. Nobody would be able to pay enough money or build enough weapons in secret to counteract the Death Star and then go do something else. It's economically and psychologically irresistible for the Empire to pursue this battle station. You you can't counter it. Until, of course, the space wizard torpedoes it and sticks a giant middle finger up to you and your friends and your doctrine. And now that occurred because of a fatal flaw designed in the Death Star by its lead scientist Galen Erso and exploited by Rebel Alliance and their uh, resident intergalactic druid Luke Skywalker. Had the Death Star been built without that flaw, it would have been practically impossible to destroy, right? But would it have been effective in the long term? And more importantly, how many Imperial eggs had to get put in that super laser basket for the project to get over the line? Figuring out how much a Death Star likely really costs is like figuring out how much anything in Star Wars costs, and indeed most of sci-fi. The economics of sci-fi universes are usually very shoddily done. Uh, Money in Star Wars is a lot like fiat currency in our universe. It makes absolutely no sense, and it's randomly manipulated by a bunch of weirdos. The conversion rates for galactic or imperial credits just don't seem to stack up. Things that should cost millions only cost a fraction of that. I mean, the X-Wing costs 150,000 credits. But one credit is said to be one US dollar. The price of technology and investment required to develop new tech uh, does seem to be much lower than our reality, so it's okay. It's obvious for entertainment's sake we don't need a fully functioning economic model of Star Wars. Uh, And the fact is Star Wars has some solid pricing for... A lot of things, except maybe for spaceships. Food prices seem similar, uh, as do other bits and pieces from some of the older RPG source books. But something's definitely off when an interstellar craft that carries proton torpedoes, laser blasters, costs the same as a as a new Mercedes. Even the poorest Star Wars planet could likely have fielded a vast space fleet in this case. Then if we take analogs from other things, uh, for example spice in Star Wars, which is the equivalent of hard drugs, we can start to see a bit clearer of a picture. In several sources, one gram of spice is listed as costing one credit. Now if it's being sold by the gram, it's probably analogous to either cocaine or heroin, the hard drugs. 
And taking drugs as an analogue is, is actually quite a good choice because they're mostly illegal and their producers, although cartels, do tend to engage in a lot of pure market behaviour. But then this makes regular items too expensive, right? If one credit is one gram of these drugs that cost $100 here, that means one credit would be worth $100. So, you know, when you go out to buy a beer, it's a nickel, right? It just doesn't make sense. And the problem with the starships is nothing's going to cost $150,000 that's capable of interstellar flight. I think the X-Wing has a relatively solid equivalent, though, in, in our fighter jets. If we look at everyone's favorite BERT machine, the A-10 Warthog. The A-10 was a close air support workhorse that was incredibly survivable and loved by its pilots. So much so that they tried to get rid of it and now it's coming back. Adjusted for inflation, it probably costs about $25 million in today's dollars. But let's be a bit cheeky here and say... You know, economies of scale and Star Wars tech meant it only cost $15 million. So if it costs $15 million, and we say it's 150,000 credits, seems like the easiest thing to do is to modify the prices and to say that when we're looking at starships in Star Wars, they actually cost 100 times what they said they cost in credits. This would also allow for the fact that were you to hire somebody to fly an X-Wing, for it to make sense in their annual salary, let's say they would earn, you know, 50,000 to 75,000 US dollars. Backwards converting in the silly Star Wars numbers, they'd make, you know, $150 a year, which just sounds absurd, or 150 credits. So really an X-Wing costs 15 million credits and one kilogram of space cocaine costs a thousand credits or maybe 10,000 credits. So what did the Death Star cost? And if, if we look at this conversion rate, what did it cost? It cost 100 trillion credits plus. According to a Medium.com article in 2019, the cost for us to build a Death Star discounting launch cost would be 500,000 times higher than this. And that's probably too much for any technology to compensate for. Also, we have to take into account drastically reduced labor costs in the form of droids and definitely material costs. I assume raw material in Star Wars is mined from asteroids. And there have been asteroids in our solar system that contain all the raw material in elemental form that you would need to build a Death Star. And it's theoretically free. Like you just go out and grab it with a tractor beam, right? So all things considered, we'll, we'll take the cost at 100 trillion and and say that if it's a dollar to a credit, then these are the type of prices that have to make sense. Another way of looking at it is that it's about 7,000 Star Destroyers, which still holds true even in the original pricing guidelines, but again allows our TIE fighter pilots and our Imperial Navy stormtroopers to actually make a decent living without weird things costing what they did in the 1740s. So construction costs including design materials uh, labor those weird consultants that really don't do anything it's about a hundred trillion in a galaxy that probably has a GDP in the quintillions but there were other costs involved with such a large project especially a large military project there were human capital costs social capital costs risk costs and opportunity costs Whatever way you could, 
the Death Star is going to require incredibly skilled people to operate, maintain, protect, and administer. While it would of course benefit from economies of scale versus a fleet with similar money spent on it, the simple fact is the Death Star has to always be active to some extent. Yes, you can take it out of commission for repairs and maintenance, but it does need to be in a strategic readiness state, and you have to be able to blow up a planet in an acceptable amount of time. Maybe that's months, maybe that's weeks, I don't really know, but you you need to concentrate a certain amount of manpower there at any one time. When you have staff that do that, and they're doing it on the Death Star, that's their job. It's not going to be possible to split off bite-sized pieces of your Death Star to carry out specific missions outside of the small amount of strike craft that you you might have already on board the space station. Whatever man hours you get for the Death Star human resources, from troop trainers to chefs, they're much less able to be rotated out than fleet-based resources. The logistics of a fleet-sized staff is going to require a lot more time to make any significant changes or rotate out from a planning and operational viewpoint than if you could just shuffle people between similar classes of spaceship. Now, you might get away with the scale of the Death Star allowing you to cycle in a large number of incompetent employees because you'll likely only ever need a certain percentage of good people to face down any threat. However, you're also going to need some of your top people in technical areas to keep the station moving. It's likely that the training to be an engineer grade on the Death Star is a bit higher than that of any Imperial capital ship, and you have very limited scope for training wheels, well-placed progression, and redundancies. Overall, you're going to have some help from, again, the economies of scale, but it's, it's going to be completely overshadowed by having to put all your eggs in one basket. The Death Star might be resilient, but it's a single point of failure. If the space toilets break, it's a floating ball of poop until the space plumbers come to fix it. It refers to the likely or potential loss you make when you choose between option A or option B. If you have $1 million to invest in crypto, but you have to pick either Bitcoin or Ethereum, the opportunity cost is the money you lose choosing one over the other. In strategic sense, the opportunity cost is less economic and more practical. The Empire needs to carry out X number of functions spending Y amount of credits. The number Y is never sufficient to carry out X number of functions successfully. The opportunity cost of the Death Star is the number of functions it will carry out compared to the number of functions that could be carried out by alternative projects. So if the Death Star has to destroy six planets a year, but you have another weapon system that can destroy eight planets a year, you effectively lose one third of the strategic return on your Death Star investment. Now, what the alternative investments could have been is the topic of our next Star Wars episode, but suffice to say there were some pretty solid alternatives. Now, social capital, on the other hand, is one of those weird phrases that gets tossed around a lot, but in this case, it basically means the relationship between the Empire and its subjects, its neighbors, their suppliers, and their vassal states. All this has a value, because when you have a positive relationship with the people who supply your army with food or steel for your spaceships, you can generally get a faster return on investment and turnaround times and better service, better deals. Maybe your R&D is faster because people just get you and foster innovation because you're all in sync. Of course you can get some of these effects using fear. 
That's what the Empire and authoritarian regimes are all about, but fear has an upper limit. If you threaten people with death all the time for little reason, at a certain point, a significant minority of people stop caring. Positive effort towards you evaporates because people will only do what's needed to not get blown up by the giant space laser and won't really care too much about trying to excel if they know they can be killed for the slightest transgression. Nobody is going to like you or the fact that you do that to people. Yes, you can get what you want through coercion, but in such a huge galaxy, the amount of people that either love you because they're space fascists too, or fear you enough to actively help you, is going to be much smaller than you think, and your efficiency and eventually legitimacy will start to decline. There's a huge difference between an evil empire invading your lands and stealing half your cows, versus that same empire killing everybody you've ever known, taking all your cows and salting the earth. For a government that wants to control through fear, death as default is not the best long-term strategy. Finally, there's an exposure cost or a risk cost here. We all know what happened to both Death Stars. They went boom. Two of them went boom in a row. So at a minimum, 200 trillion credits of effort were completely lost without any chance of recovery. I'm being kind here and assuming some of the scrap may have been recoverable, but the 2 to 3 million people that died sure as hell aren't. And that's the exposure cost of such a big project. If it goes wrong, you are completely goose. It turns out to be a giant glass hammer, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, but even if it hadn't been designed with a fatal flaw, the sheer risk to economic and political stability such as centralization of resources would have caused is difficult to ignore. Certainly, any military theory 101 course would tell you that the fact that a lot of the moths were even on the space station to meet in the first place was an absolute no-no. Functionally, in the original trilogy, we see the Empire is irrevocably damaged by the loss of its Death Star. When the Emperor sort of semi-dies on the second Death Star, it's recognised by him the game is up and his structures weren't suitable for his long-term vision. As a character, he's probably as powerful as the Death Star himself, but it's being too kind to be able to say that he could go for another Death Star if he'd survived the Battle of Endor. The entire saga is pretty much one big how many times do we have to teach you your lesson, old man? And obviously this is a fatal character flaw of the Sith. They are greedy and overly aggressive, too headstrong, arrogant and power crazy. And that has to be the reason, because it's incredibly rare and incredibly dumb for any government to concentrate all of its decision-making power in one static space. They did it in Death Star 1 with the Moffs, and they did it in Death Star 2 with the Emperor and Darth Vader. It's not a democracy where it's politically important to have State of the Union addresses where your entire government is concentrated. Keeping members of your military junta scattered is smart, and limiting exposure of your central command structure is also smart. It's a risk and it has a cost. To safely do what they did would have also required building backup power structures that, that would have cost more money. And indeed, we know that a lot of what the Emperor did was play different factions off against each other so no power underneath the Emperor could centralize in any way, shape or form to the extent that the people were able to challenge him. So the idea of big centralized projects does seem to go against his general survival instinct. So not only have you created a big centralized risk by creating the glass hammer, but you're also going to have to spend money 
ameliorating this risk in countless other ways, more than the 100 trillion credits. It was an incredibly expensive idea that was poorly thought out from a strategic standpoint. Rule through fear is a great idea. Rule through death is a terrible idea. So would it have achieved its goals if it had survived, and did it really achieve them in the first place? That's a bit tricky to judge. In one way, it did sow terror in the hearts of the rebellion to the point that many of its leaders wanted to immediately give up the fight upon hearing about its existence. Even after its destruction, the fact that it did exist and that Alderaan was destroyed would have sent a powerful message for many years. In certain sections of the galaxy, the fact that the Death Star was blown up would have been totally eclipsed by the fear value of the destruction of an entire planet. If you knew the Empire could build more of these things and believe they were willing to use it, you would definitely be afraid. That really gives us another clear parallel between the Death Star and weapons of mass destruction. Going back to what we said about World War II and the atomic bombing of Japan, the selection of the targets in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was very intentional. They met a range of criteria. They were important enough to the Japanese war effort, but not so culturally or industrially important that their destruction would be terminal at the national level. But why does that matter? Tarkin didn't want to destroy Dantween because it was too remote. Alderaan was a core world, meaning it had significant importance politically and would have been well known culturally. In addition, according to the source material, Alderaan wasn't a hub of industry or galactic finance. It was more of a small, well-managed country with natural beauty that was centrally located and well-known. This gels with the US strategic thinking during the atomic bombings. Alderaan would be a devastating loss for many people, but it was comparatively smaller than Corellia, for example, which is a massively important system. Of course, the idea of permanently erasing any place, whether it be a city or a planet, is horrifying. It shows the brutality of the Empire above and beyond mere strategic calculation. What they really wanted was a one-size-fits-all solution to crush dissent. They valued their military resources so far above the lives of normal citizens that normal repression was either too much effort or incompatible with their space fascist brains. If it had survived, what would have been the next logical step after Alderaan? I've read somewhere, and I, f I forget now, that the Empire planned to build two or three uh, more Death Stars. So let's assume that they built three in total, and that two were available at any one time, and we've suddenly solved our problem of having to refit and rotate out a Death Star. We can have two available at all time. As anybody involved in logistics and vehicles will tell you, you're unlikely to have 100% of your fleet 100% good to go at any time. Even still, two Death Stars functioning at 50% would still be very effective. The next step would be to create both visibility and mystery around the superweb. Planets would probably know through intentionally leaked intelligence where one Death Star was at any point in time. The Empire would likely try to hide the other somewhere in deep space, moving it around so each planet knew where one Death Star was, but that another Death Star might come knocking on your door without warning, even if you are far away from the first one. In a widely spread galaxy, the Imperial Fleet and the two Death Stars would be spaced enough apart to support overall operations, but also to clearly show 
system-shattering firepower was nearby at all times. In Grand Moff Tarkin's eyes, this would have been perfect. The Emperor too would likely have enjoyed the fear and uncertainty, and hence control this dispersion of forces would have given him. But the problem with a weapon of mass destruction is right there in their choice of Alderaan. Yes, it was Leia's homeworld, yes, it was heavily involved in the rebellion, but the Empire calculated that Alderaan was politically and economically expendable. Would they have dared to destroy Corellia? Both core worlds with small populations, both very obvious shows of strength, but Corellia provided thousands of pilots and dozens of large ships for the Imperial Navy. You can't replace that. You would literally be kneecapping yourself by choosing the worst possible option. And this is the semi-paradox about weapons of mass destruction, uh, specifically nuclear weapons. They guarantee you a degree of safety from external threat, but if they use them against someone who has them too, you're dead. And if you keep using them against others, eventually you face two problems. One, you deplete territory and resources at a point that you're the master of an irradiated Earth or galaxy. And, as mentioned earlier, you make utter annihilation a more common threat. The human spirit is a remarkable thing, and the spirits of all species in the Star Wars galaxy likely averaged out to be the same. When you think you have a people broken into submission, a single spark can light a fire within them. There is a point at which fear of death becomes less than fear of living under your current conditions. Authoritarian regimes throughout history dealt in a lot of death, but also in a lot of steps below death because they realize that there are limits to coercion. Uh, Emiliano Zapata, the Mexican revolutionary, summed it up perfectly when he stated that he preferred to die standing than live forever kneeling, or any one of 15 versions of that very famous quote. To be successful, the Empire needed to offer fates worse than death to any dissidents, as well as fates that weren't tragic to any collaborators. We know many dissidents were sent to work in mines or imperial facilities as indentured servants or straight-up slaves. It's likely torture, imprisonment, and everything down to steep fines were part of the Emperor's playbook. The Death Star makes all of those things relevant. Threat of the use of overwhelming force eclipses all other threats. But if you can't practically carry it out, it stops being useful. The The Emperor couldn't blow up Coruscant, he couldn't blow up the Galactic Capital if it went into open rebellion. The Death Star would be practically useless and most of the people on the planet would know that. And in a galaxy where your empire spans one million worlds, you're, you're really not going to have one million targets. You're, you're going to have four categories of targets. You're going to have dynamite planets, invasion planets, borderline planets, and pointless planets. A dynamite planet will be small enough not to be missed, but big enough to pose a relevant threat either politically, economically, or militarily. But it also has to be geographically unimportant for you, too. An invasion planet will be big enough to be missed. That's it. If it's big enough that you can't blow it up, you're going to have to invade it. A borderline planet might be missed and might pose a threat, but it's not really clear just how big a deal destroying it would be. And you'd probably have to think about it and maybe throw half of them to general invasion rather than complete destruction. Pointless planets that are so small and such little threat you would get in trouble for even using the resources required to fire the laser wouldn't be worth your while at all. For example, 
Tatooine had the same population as Des Moines, Iowa, or if we're going to bump up the numbers because of Star Wars economics and math, the same population as Seattle or Dallas, in the galactic sense, it's, it's barely even worth garrisoning, right? Now, to control an empire, you don't need direct control over every square inch. You need the ability to quickly take control of areas that descent and to permanently hold core areas and the pathways between them, i.e. you have to hold the big cities and enough of the countryside to connect everything relevant together. All of this means that the Empire could afford to blow up a limited number of dynamite planets, but they're evil, not dumb. Well, I guess functionally they are dumb, but they're dumb from ambition, not from any sort of intellectual deficiency. So the core question of all of this is would the Death Star have delivered dollar for dollar, credit for credit, what the Empire needed to, and better than any alternatives? We know the Death Star cowed some people, but it would not have cowed the entire galaxy into complete submission, and it would not have prevented the rot suffered by all corrupt and authoritarian regimes. It would have been dangerous to exist outside the explicit command of the Emperor and the Chief of Staff of the Imperial Navy or very trusted lieutenants. I mean, imagine a rogue moth in control of a Death Star and now your nightmares have genuinely come true and Corellia might be blown up. It would have been an incredibly powerful symbol and temporarily defeated the Rebellion if it had blown up Yavin 4, that, that's clear, but a Rebellion would emerge and they'd attempt to skirt the influence of the Death Star. They would have had a steady flow of people and material. Every remaining Alderanian would have become a fanatical rebel. Suddenly you've got 25 to 30,000 able-bodied men and women who, like in V for Vendetta, you, you freed from all fear. They don't care. You literally blew up everything they ever loved. In a huge galaxy with porous borders and easily obtained weapons, you're in serious trouble. But that's the point of the Sith. They all inevitably become moustache-twirling villains through an inherent psychological flaw. The dark side drives them insane and they have enough bootlickers to go along with their harebrained schemes and dress in snappy uniforms. Even Grand Moff Tarkin, who is said to be incredibly well-educated and trained, thought it was a fantastic idea, along with many other high-ranking Imperials. A strategy of rule through fear, uh, you know, coercion, it, it does work, but the Death Star as an idea wasn't a good idea. It was inefficient, risky, and less effective than alternatives. Yes, a terrifying single symbol of coercion and unlimited power, which is exactly what Darth Sidious wanted, but unlikely what a military hunter of competent officers would have come up with. In the end, it became a glaring symbol of his vulnerability and the vulnerability of the Empire that he spent decades forging. It had the exact opposite effect as intended. So like all powerful men when emasculated, he doubled down and built a second one. And now he's pretty much dead. They might make another movie and bring him back again, but he's pretty much dead. And the next time we, we look at Star Wars, we're going to look at what the Empire could have used the Death Star money for instead, and whether or not that would have made a difference, whether or not that would have destroyed the Rebellion before the Rebellion could destroy the Empire. That wraps up this episode of Grimdark Battle Station. 
like to thank you for tuning in and if you'd like to support the podcast please like share and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on twitter at the underscore gbds we will see you again soon for some more sci-fi deconstruction